and welcome to the Nosy Fox Podcast with me, Natasha Murta. Each episode will be an interview with someone that I find interesting and has a story to tell that I believe is worth sharing. Some of the people I'll be talking to are people that I know, but some are strangers that for one reason or another, I wanted to get to know. This is a podcast about people and storytelling, two of my favorite things. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I have lived beside the sea for most of my life. I grew up in Greystones, County Wicklow, with a bedroom window that faces the Irish Sea and I would often fall asleep to the sound of crashing waves. My parents have a cottage in County Mayo, on the west coast of Ireland, and this is where we spent most of our summers. I have fond memories of packing ham and coleslaw rolls and heading to Silver Strand with Mum, Dad and my brother Patrick. I remember playing sharks and fishes in the sand dunes, a game that involved Dad chasing my brother and I around the dunes and having the absolute fear of God in me. We would camp on Clare Island and fish for mackerel. And when we were successful, which we often were, we would cook the mackerel over a fire and eat it with curried baked beans. We would go rock pooling on Doc McKeown Beach, which we've obnoxiously always called our beach or muzzle dog beach, because there was a house on the road with a dog and a muzzle that always chased our car as we drove by. And as kids, that was always very exciting. But as I've grown older, the sea now means something different to me. It's not so much a playground, but a sanctuary. It's somewhere I will go when I need to relax or reset. During dark or challenging times, sea swimming has become my therapy, as it has for so many other people. Before I started swimming in the sea regularly, I remember my friend Jade telling me that doing it every day was kind of life-changing, and she was right. There's a magic in the sea that can't be found anywhere else. And I know I'm going to sound biased, but it is extra special here in Ireland. My next guest on this week's episode of the Nosy Fox podcast also found a magic in the water. My guest this week on the Nosy Fox podcast is singing coach, voice trainer, puppeteer turned professional freediver, 36-year-old Kildare woman Claire Walsh. In 2015, while travelling in Belize off the eastern coast of Central America, Claire saw some young boys freediving and it sparked something inside her. After completing a number of courses in Utila, Honduras, Claire added freediving to her extensive CV. Just four years after taking up the sport, Claire was the first person to represent Ireland in the Free Diving Championships. Claire, you are very welcome on the Nosy Fox Podcast. Mm, delighted to be here. <laughs> so, Claire, we're going to... We have a lot to cover. You're a um, jack of all trades. Yeah. Um, but can you start... You're from Kildare. That's right. So, you know, Kildare has a really strong association with the sea. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Nope. Lo- loads of seagulls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Lovely coast road in Kildare. Uh, no, I'm from uh, Leakslip, County Kildare, which isn't proper, proper Kildare. Um, but I would have spent a lot of time by the sea as a kid. My 
granny moved to Dunleary in 1990, so Sundays walking the pier or being by the sea would have been a thing. And well, then, like, I, I grew up kind of 80s, 90s, and you know, holidays were to Wexford or maybe to Cork or you know, so uh, Waterford a lot, and the, the main activity was the beach. Um, and I have such strong memories, and I think it, it was in Waterford of we'd be driving to the beach and Bunmahan was the beach and we'd be looking for the flag and obviously red and yellow and it was safe to swim, red it wasn't and we could see that flag from quite a, a long way down so you were kind of waiting, 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 waiting. I was like, yellow flag, let's go, let's go, let's go and it was literally changing into togs in the car the excitement to go to the water um, was always there um, and yeah, and I think in my mid-twenties I moved out towards the sea and I haven't moved back inland and I don't think I will. Yeah, the sea is the the bomb. It's the main draw for me. Yeah, definitely. It is. And so you, I know that you studied, you are sort of going into the, the drama and arts world. Yeah. Um, and tell me about the uh, pretty interesting career you had. You want to know what I'm doing, don't you? Give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, I, like, I've done speech and drama since I was a kid. I think I started when I was four years old. Um, and you know, loved it. Did like all the school musicals on the way up. Um, and when I finished uh, whatever secondary school, I went on to do a BA in drama in DIT, the Conservative Music and Drama, at Mines. And then I did a master's in London uh, about movement and theatre. Um, and yeah, so so my work after that was pretty varied, so pretty eclectic. I you know. The question I always hated was um, if anyone asked me, you know, what do you do? Because I would have to go, well, what day of the week are you talking about? Because I very hugely, uh, you know, Mondays were my day off. Uh, Tuesdays I taught um, uh, movement to um, people with a learning disability. Um, Wednesday I taught drama in a school. Uh, Thursday I taught singing and then I taught a gospel choir in the evening uh, Friday was Friday, Saturday, Sunday were puppet theatre and um, so yeah like over the years it's just been a huge variety and I suppose the most unusual one is the <laughs> puppeteering um, but it's something actually that I really really love and found such a passion for and bizarrely it kind of created a through line uh, with all my work so, you know, saying that, you know, I, I do movement or whatever that is, movement or drama or singing and now puppeteering, it actually helped me link them, maybe in my head, maybe not um, to the outside eye, but the through line was breath. And then the first thing you do to bring a puppet to life is, you know, breathe with it. So it's really quite astounding. And... <clears throat> With singing, breath support is such a factor. The same with um, movement, the same with voice. So I would have grown up with terms like intercostal diaphragmatic breathing or, you know, breath support or use your um, breath to project or place your voice. or what, All these terms would have been in my vocabulary from quite a young age. And then puppetry gave it a really, I suppose, brought the magic to it, if I'm being honest. And then fast forward, I think, eight years beyond that. And I learned how to hold my breath. And that that was just a 
whole new dimension to it. And I think that's where I've learned the most about it. Breath, that is. Mm-hmm. And before we talk about um, breathing and diving, um, I know we touched on this last time we spoke, but when you were in London, it was quite a challenging year. Mm, yeah. Very isolating and slightly overwhelming for you. Yeah. Um, so in retrospect, I shouldn't have really been there at all. Um, I got onto a master's programme in Central School of Speech and Drama, quite a prestigious school in London. I was just finished my BA, um, I think I was 23, 24. There were five of us in the course. The course was on its, I can't remember, first or second year, and it was so intense. And I think the summer before that, I had done everything I could to earn money. You know, obviously to support myself while I was in London. Um, and I worked day shifts and night shifts. So there was a lot of tiredness there as well. Um, but I went over to London not in a great headspace. My boyfriend at the time was back in Ireland. My family were back. And I never, I wouldn't have considered myself a homebird. You know, I, I don't let homesickness limit me in terms of travelling. But I just felt so displaced well over there and I think yeah my mental health um just took a real a real beating um, and I came home at the end of that year like as soon as I could I think I wrote most of my thesis from here I just wanted to get back um and yeah it, it honestly is it's, it's kind of a blur um, but yeah it was a really tough year and I'm funny it took me quite a while to go back to London after it to even visit it um, yeah, it's it's a learning year, and that through year. that through that year, and sort of realizing that your mental health wasn't great. Mm-hmm. Have you have you lived um, your life very much more conscious of your ha- mental health since? Uh, it took a while, you know. So I came home. Gosh, I think it was two thousand and five. No, it must have been before that. I can't remember. Anyway, I came home early-ish, 20s. It took another couple of years, two stints in hospital, um, for me to start changing things around my mental health. Like, honestly, it probably took the guts of eight, nine years um, wow. to get any sort of pattern. And then also to uh, detach myself from the label of being mentally ill. That became a really big part of my identity I used to think that people could read it, like that was somewhere on my back that people would be able to go, oh God, that's her, oh look what she turned around Claire, and read my diagnosis. I really thought people could almost smell it off me. It was something I really, was really self-conscious about, um, and maybe defensive about as well. And it wasn't until, yeah, I think I was 32, 33, um, and you just, you kind of, you know, that saying's coming to mind, nothing changes if nothing changes. So a big change had to happen. And that's when I decided to go off traveling on my own. I'd done a little bit of traveling in my 20s, but not a whole pile, honestly. You know, my 20s in my head now are just being sick. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the guts of it anyway. So 32 was like, no, I'm done, I'm out of here. And you went traveling to a part of the world that's very dear to me. Um, tell tell me where you started and tell me why you wanted to go to this particular part of the world. Um, 
I had no major grow for Central or South America. I knew very little about it. My brother had gone to Colombia and Ecuador and Peru the summer before, and it was over Christmas. He was, you know, we were still chatting about the different travels, and <laughs> I just said, I might go there. <laughs> and on New Year's Eve, I booked a ticket, so it did happen quite quickly. Um, so I started in Panama and worked my way down through Colombia. Colombia. Colombia is a country I would go back to in a heartbeat. What did you like about it so much? Oh, everything. Um, I think it's because that was my, I suppose, you know, it's like you always love your first car. It doesn't matter what the car looks like. Now, Colombia, as it happens, has so much to offer. But just, you know, I could be on amazing, pristine beaches and then um, kind of in the jungle and all the activities I did was just... Mm incredible very colorful country that's exactly it and the smells are so different and yeah yeah it's just do you know what it just totally immersed you like your senses were just switched up like nothing i had experienced before did you go to tyrona national park yes i did yes i did it's amazing and my favorite was san gil though um i don't think i went there a bit further south um, and we did uh, I did abseiling and um, what else did we do there oh my gosh loads there oh we went rafting excuse me down the river there yeah it was incredible it was just pure adventure brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant. and then where did you go then I went down through Ecuador um, out to the Galapagos Islands which is another um, I was watching the end of Shit's Creek yesterday <laughs> and those episodes around the Galapagos Island just makes me want to return there and then went to a little bit of Peru. Um, so it was it was really incredible. I had to come home to Ireland. I didn't have to. I returned home to work in the theatre for a few months. <clears throat> we used to do school tours there. So for, April, well, April, May, and June, it could be quite busy. So I returned home to do a, a stint there, um, earning some more money. And then I headed back out. And this time I started in Mexico and went down through, excuse me, Central America. And that's where I saw freediving. But it's funny, now that you say it, so, you know, I, I, I credit with my first experience of freediving as being in Belize, seeing those lads. But actually, in the Galapagos, we went on like a day trip on the boat. And I remember this, uh, he worked on the boat, he was a really big guy, um, quite clumsy on his feet. And I remember thinking, how does he work on a boat? He's worse than I am. And I'm hopeless on boats in terms of steadiness and balance anyway we were chatting and he said I'll give you a race a swimming race I was like yeah sure you're on um oh my gosh he was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in the water he was so deft just cutting through the water the speed the grace anyway I lost the race (laughs) um and we had snorkels on and then we put on fins so I was snorkeling and watching him in the water. I do remember thinking this is the closest person, the closest thing I've seen to a merman. Like he had grown up on the Galapagos. This is this was his natural habitat. It was astounding. That's amazing. So yeah, I saw a real life merman. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be the quote of this podcast. Isn't it? <laughs> How to find your merman yeah. with Claire Walsh. <laughs> That's like a new dating app. <laughs> and so you were in Belize and you saw these young lads yeah. free dive. Oh, before we go into that, what is free diving? So free diving is the sport of holding your breath underwater. So it's 
it's divided into different disciplines. One is measured in time. Uh, another set is, is measured in distance, and that would be in pool. And then the, the section that I suppose I have my love for is depth. So that's done in open water. And that's, you know, taking a breath on the surface and then going down as far as you can on one breath and returning. It's pretty breathtaking. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you did uh, your first um, course, uh, many to follow afterwards, in diving in Utila. Yeah. which is considered the number one place in the world to learn how to dive, yeah. I believe. Yeah. It's one of my biggest regrets, not doing it when I was out that way. Scuba but anyway, it's an excuse to go back. Diving, yeah. And so you were just fascinated with this. Mm. What was it about it before you got involved? What was it that you just, you had to, had to do it? Was it watching people going down? Was yeah, it... so it was watching people going down, and I'm pretty competitive as a person, um, and I think... You know, at that point, I'd spent so much time in the water on this trip, whether it was snorkeling or scuba diving or just swimming. Um, and I thought, I should be able to do this. You know, I, I've been swimming for years, so I was like, I should be able to. Obviously, I couldn't because of my ears. Like most people, if they try to descend without equalizing, they're going to get a pretty sharp pain um, in their ears. So I can't, so I wanted to do it, but I can't say there was any bigger motivation than it would have been for scuba diving or mm -hmm. trying anything other number of activities I did in that trip that trip was just a pure say yes you know my brother had advised me you know if you're offered to do something just say yes irrespective of whether it's in your comfort zone or not keep a couple of no's in your back pocket for safety reasons mm -hmm. but try new things so this this seemed right up my alley <clears throat> So I remember getting to Utila and the first thing I did was book my course. Then I bought 10 scuba dives and I didn't use any of them. <gasps> yeah. I, I, that was it. It was done. It's done scuba. I haven't done scuba dive since. I stuck to free diving. Oh, wow. That's yeah. interesting. I remember. I, I can't remember if I sold it or gave it away or whatever. Um, no, I, no interest. No interest. It just stopped. And what, what, what is it about freediving that you love so much more than scuba diving? Is it, It's probably a lot more freeing because you don't have all that crap yeah, on your back. you don't have all the gear. And someone had said it to me, um, which I only remembered recently. We were doing a safety stop for scuba diving. So it's at obviously five metres, just below the surface. And I loved them because I'd kind of loosen my equipment a bit and try and feel a bit more free in the water. Um, and when they, when that part is one of your favourite parts of the dives, maybe that's an inkling that you know there is another way to do it um yeah it was just more freeing i think again there i won't say there's an end goal but there's something that you can work towards um so i wanted to increase my depth i wanted to learn more it was just throwing up so many more challenges for me that that made me hungry that made me keep going back to it for years i thought i would give it up as soon as i came home but you know, so the last time I've been, been freediving now is last uh, end of November. And you think, okay, that's that's a long time out of the water. The the love and the hunger to get back there just grows with each month. I dream about it. I spend so much time looking at pictures of it. And that's what kind of happens when you're home. You think about returning. 
after all the different things that you've tried in life, would you say that freediving is your real passion? Um, yeah, like, again, I think it kind of falls under a bit of an umbrella for me. Um, and again, they're all interconnected. So I mentioned equalizing your ears earlier on, and that's to, to relieve the pressure they get from just going under under the water, which is probably the most simplistic way of describing it, maybe not the most accurate. Um, but I equalize in quite a different way. Most people pinch their nose and take a breath, um, but I just move my jaw, or I can, I can move my eustachian tubes uh, involuntarily, and I can equalize that way. So that's called hands-free equalizing, and I can do it at deck, which is, again, quite unusual. So the reason I think I can do that is because I sing, or have sung for years, and have a good awareness of how my voice works and what needs to be done. So free diving is like, it's genuinely, it's one of my loves, but it's so, to me, it's connected with singing. It's bizarrely connected with puppetry. I don't know how, but it just is. They're, they're, they're all interconnected um, in my head and Again, cliche warning, um, those elements, singing, movement, puppetry, make me the freediver that I am. Oh, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> but they do. They come together and they, they inform how I am in the water. There are lots of different types of freedivers. And, yeah. So tell me how you went from freediving for the first time out in Utila mm -hmm. to then only four years later representing Ireland in the freediving championships. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. Um, That's pretty wild. Yeah, it was. And I was only talking to someone about this yesterday. I represented Ireland in the freediving world championships. Obviously, I was never going to win or anything like that. But I still stood there underneath the tricolour um, during the athlete parade. And no one could take that away from me. You know, it was such a proud moment. We were just talking about the Olympians returning. And so, like, I, I only have a sniff of what it might be like. But even my experience was one of my proudest moments. Talk to me about it. So, um, that all happened September 2019. Um, in November 2018... Um, I suppose was the end of what I'd call a, a series of shitty events. Lots, lots of things happened. Um, I, I got pretty badly injured. I burnt the back of my leg. Um, uh, work things were happening, and then there, there was a, a personal tragedy. Um, so by November, I was. Um, I wouldn't say I was very low, but I was, and it's to fed up would be, to say fed up would be to trivialise it as well. But again, nothing changes if nothing changes. And my God, I needed a change. I actually couldn't live like this. I just was like, no, 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 no. So I knew, I think the first one, first idea was to maybe do a really big race, do a marathon or, you know, set that goal. Obviously with my leg, um, I thought, okay, that's probably not the wisest thing. So I started going to a personal trainer, a super guy called Keith Granger. Um, and I just, okay, well, first of all, we'll get back to baseline fitness. I knew the world championships were coming up the following year. So January 
2019, I sent an email to the governing body, excuse me, saying, you know, usually it's done as a team. I said, look, we don't have a team. Could I go as an independent athlete representing Ireland? And I sent over my numbers and so on. And it's one of those emails. It was on my to-do list for months. And I just wanted to cross it off. So I sent it, almost hoping they said no. Because <laughs> then I'd have to follow it through. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, <laughs> they said yes. They'd love to have a representative from Ireland. So first time Ireland was going to be represented. Shit. <laughs> and I had to do it. So how long did you have to train? So that that was January. So there was those decisions. So first I need to get fit. When can I go out to water? When can I so to me it was Egypt. And how am I gonna fund this? Um and I'm really lucky. I got a terrific sponsor, um, TimeWise Systems, and they gave me financial support to go out training. So I headed out I didn't go out training until May. I trained from May, June, July, August, and the World Championships were in September. And most of the other athletes here would train for how long? <laughs> 18 months. Yeah, like, yeah. Did it, people think you were mad? Yeah, no, totally. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> I just I remember feeling like, I just was like the Jamaican bobsled team from Coolings, surrounded by all these really professional athletes. Um, uh, you know, doing it their way, and here I was rocking up. Anyway, but it was it was an experience that I wouldn't swap. It was so challenging. It was, it was more challenging than I ever would have imagined. Um, what did you actually have to do in the competition? So I did three dives. I did uh, three of the disciplines. First one being CNF, so constant no fins, which looks like a form of breaststroke. Um. And arguably that would be the most challenging discipline in freediving. Mentally it's really demanding and physically it's really demanding. Um, and I blacked out on the surface of that dive. That was my first dive. Um, and that was another, that was, uh, it was a moment that I probably won't forget. Um, that would have been my biggest fear. You know, if someone had said to me, going heading to the airport during, you know, in May, said okay what's the worst that could happen Claire I would say blacking out on my CNF dive even though it's a relatively shallow dive compared to the other divers that would be the most embarrassing the most humbling the worst thing that could happen in the world spoiler that's exactly what happened were there loads of people watching yeah yeah loads 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 and it's really funny because I used that video in some of my talks uh, and it's on YouTube and you know the commentary along the side like the most so um, one of them Andy Creevy uh, so my my sister's friend's husband was watching and you know typing in the comments and then my other sister's friend from Maynooth it just was wild seeing these people go come on Claire oh my god this is bonkers um, so yeah lots of people were and why did you black out, dude? Um, I, 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 like, I blacked out, I think, I guess nerves. I didn't feel nervous. I remember a diver said to me, a safety diver said to me afterwards, don't forget the biggest organ in your body that uses oxygen is your brain. Which again, I think is a, a pretty good statement to remember um, on land too. 
And I just was overthinking. I was, I was, it was a really emotional moment. I was aware everyone was watching and bear in mind, people, my family were over and friends came over as well. They were watching on a big screen. I had my aunties tuning in at home and this was their first experience of what freediving was. And I suddenly black out. And where I, you know, I've seen blackouts happen and I know how scary they can look. I didn't know how mine looked obviously until I got to see it on camera. But I had no idea of where it happened, how it happened, or what I looked like. So I was really worried for mum and dad. Um, uh, what? I haven't seen the video. What did it actually look? It, it looked absolutely fine, to be honest with you. It looked like I just, I just fell forward into the water. And how long were you down, facing down for? I'm grabbed. You're grabbed within seconds. Um, and then you're, you're, I was given a rescue breath. And then I came to a lovely French guy called Arturo. Is it Arturo? Uh, gave me a rescue breath essentially like a kiss it's not the worst way to wake up um, but it's funny I remember being pulled out of the water and obviously I'm, I'm regaining consciousness so I have my, my last memory is being about 10 metres from the surface and then suddenly you're on your back being held by people so it's, it's really disorientating and I remember just going oh shit when I realised what happened and then second, so I was trying to sit up. I'm in the water, so you can't really sit up. And they're trying to get me out of the water. So I was struggling. But it's one of those scenarios where I... The first thing that came into my head was, oh my God, mum and dad have seen this. Where's the cameras? I knew there were cameras. So I was trying to find a camera. And I was trying to, you know, give a very casual and reassuring wave to say to them, hey, mum and dad, I'm fine. And what it looked like in reality was so different. I was elbowing the people trying. It was just (laughs) disjointed. Anyway, I came back. And actually another really lovely moment, slightly more emotional moment is there was a lag on the big screen uh, that they were watching the dives on, but they watched it live on on the phone. So by the time I got back to them um, in the athletes village, we all watched the dive again. Um, and there was a big gang of us and a few other people um, in Villefranche were Irish and had heard about it so they came down too so suddenly I had a gang of nearly 20 Irish people chanting for me and I'm there going lads you know how this ends but I think if goodwill could have changed the outcome of that dive it would have that's so nice yeah like Irish fans are the best fans can't beat them yeah it was that's a really special moment and so you blacked out on your first of three yeah how did the other two go so that was on a Sunday I was due to have my next one on the Tuesday but weather it was cold off due to weather so my second dive ended up being the Thursday so it was a long couple of days um, and it was there was so much learning in those few days of how to rally of how to uh, get your head in the game and again like um, you know I'm, I'm called or people have referred to me as a you know freediving athlete but I was a baby there in comparison to the other people and I learned a lot from them um, one in particular was really terrific um, Stig is his name he's a Danish diver and he he just said do a dive that you know you can do make sure to enjoy it look where you are and he was right so I picked like 
a really conservative death. Um, I wanted to make sure I got my white card, I could still get a national record. And I also use that video in my talks. And the moment I get my white card, which means it's been a clean dive, it's, it's not necessarily joy, it's just pure relief. It is unbelievable. Um, so yeah, there was lots of learning in that, it, like that, it was, it was really challenging. Um, but I wouldn't stop it for the world. And there's world championships on now this year in, in September in uh, Cyprus. I would love to be there, but maybe in two years' time. Mm -hmm. And you have a huge um, title above your little noggin um, about how long you can hold your breath underwater. Yeah, that's five minutes and 59 seconds. And I, it's literally mentioned in every interview you're ever with. And I was like, don't. <laughs> that is the length of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And I think when anyone thinks of that song, the first thing they, they think of is, that's yeah, a that really is. bloody long song. Yeah. So yeah. that's the time that you can hold your breath for. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that's exactly 5.59. Or there are some versions that are. Um, a little while ago, my brother-in-law texted me and said, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody's just come on. I finished my shower. I've had a shave. I've made my porridge and I'm just ready to go out the door and the song's still on. It's like, you're really quick and you get ready in the morning. But it does, it just shows you, like, there's so many sections. I'm funny, I studied that song for music in my leaving cert. Um, so would be so aware of all the different parts of it. And it was a friend of mine who came up with that number, or came up with that um, correlation between my time and Bohemian Rhapsody. And it just, it's perfect. It is, it's perfect. It's also mental. That you can hold your breath for that long. Yeah, like now, honestly, it does seem crazy. I don't know how long I could hold my breath for at the moment. Um, but yeah, I hope to break the six. And when you are like uh, in a competition and to see how long you can hold your breath, that's when you are just on the face surface, down, face yeah. down. In the so that discipline is called static. So okay. it does what it says in the tin. It is just lying flat in the water. Um, so that would be done in the pool. It's okay. a pool competition. Um, yeah. But the one that you like the most is depth. when is the depth. Yeah. And that's for uh, people that didn't know. It, uh, they're the ones that were, they're really cool images. It's <laughs> usually a rope going from the surface of the yeah. water right the way down and you can see a tiny little diver yeah. clinging onto it and just disappearing down. Yeah, it's incredible. What's the deepest you've ever swam to? <laughs> 59 metres. So you can see I have a bit of an issue with sixes, clearly. Um, I had hoped to... Uh, rectify that last year um, it won't be this year either but next year and you know like okay I'm really proud of the depth I can dive and the journey to it and so on um, but it's still pretty shallow in terms of you know the world stage of free diving um, like what people can achieve and because the free diving community is so small I, I know a lot of the athletes what they can achieve is a do you know what the, the the world record for the deepest dive is? Um, it I think it's just changed. They had a competi there was a competition in the Bahamas. It was one thirty one. That's men. It's a different discipline. Um, but there are some phenomenal female athletes at the moment, like really, really breathtaking, and they are giving the lads a run for their money. 
They are. We often do. They are. Yeah, exactly. Um, Alenka Artnik uh, is from Slovenia. Alessia Zakini is from Italy. Um, there are, and there are many more, but those are the two that are up there at the moment. They're just unbelievable. And talk to me about the sensation of, of pulling yourself down along that rope and what it is that you love so much. Oh, it's very little that I don't love, especially now when I'm not doing it. Um, the, the sensation is that the first thing I do when I turn, so I've, I've taken my breath, the snorkel comes out, my coach catches it and I uh, turn and go head first. And the very first thing I do, and it's a relatively new thing, is I say to myself, what beautiful conditions, um, how lucky am I to be doing this? Claire, have a lovely dive. Um, and that came from a, a coach I worked with really, really briefly. Uh, at the end of the training session, he told me to swim around the blue hole. So we're, we're training, so that's in Egypt. So I swam around it and then I came back and I was like, okay, so I did X amount of kicks and such and such and such. And you know, I came back with all the stats. I thought, you know, I was waiting for my gold star. And I went, okay, what, what did you see? I, oh, I wasn't really paying attention. He's like, go and do it again. And he had a similar version of that in the pool as well. And I think that really stuck with me. Was when you're training and when you're competing and you can get really focused on the numbers and the competitive, as- competitive aspect. But it's just such a good reminder of, look what we're doing. Look how lucky we are to be doing this. And if we're not taking that in, what is the point? So I try to start every dive with, this is so cool. <laughs> you know, and just say, if nothing else, it makes me smile. It makes me giggle at how stupid it is me saying that. Um, and I do the same in static, actually. Uh, it makes me giggle. Therefore, it relaxes me. Therefore, the dive's going to be easier. So it does serve as a purpose. So that happens just below the surface. And then I start pulling down. So let's take the discipline free immersion, which is pulling down on a rope. So just start pulling down. You need quite a bit of, you need to exert quite a bit of energy to, to get past that first 10 meters. That's where you're most positively buoyant. So you have to overcome buoyancy. So um, I usually find a rhythm to it. I usually use a song to help me. So 10 meters, uh, I'm going down and then, you know, 16, 17, it'll start to open up a little bit. And what I mean by that is the um, space between the pulls becomes extended. So instead of going pull, 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 glide, pull, glide, pull, glide, flying. And then, then it becomes glide, little pull glide then no more pulls and then you're free falling and that's when you tuck your chin into your chest uh, some divers hold the rope uh, underneath their arm and I, I hold it kind of in a little circle I make a circle between my thumb and forefinger just to keep myself attached to it and to orientate myself and then you're gone you're away it's it is dreamlike when you hit a really nice free fall, uh, there's no better feeling. Do you close your eyes or do you keep them open? I close my eyes and just feel the sensation. So I do wear a mask, but you can feel um, the water obviously starting to get a little bit colder at depth. You can feel it running over your face, your hands, your feet, all the parts of your body not covered by a wetsuit. 
and it is it's like a caress it's like someone just stroking your cheek it is just beautiful i i always think i look like that emoji uh with the love words in their eyes when i talk about it it's just magical and i'm really lucky my my partner is egyptian he's a diver um, and he gets it so we spend so much time dreaming and talking about our next dive trip and i'm so lucky i have someone that understands how important it is to get there mm-hmm. and um so you haven't you haven't been diving in a really long time mm-hmm. is that because um the entire world has shut down or is it because you have long covid yeah um mainly long covid we i came home from egypt uh started december for christmas and you know quarantined and got tested um limited the people I saw but got COVID. We were due to go back to Egypt mid-January and I was going to do a full training cycle which would have been three, three and a half months and then start in two competitions. But the universe had other plans so I caught COVID or I had my first symptoms on the 2nd of January and whatever we're in August now and I still have long COVID. Um, So yeah that's changed everything how I do my day-to-day life is severely limited Um, I wouldn't be able to handle diving I wouldn't be able to handle the journey to Egypt let alone diving at the minute I do believe that'll change I hope it'll change I have to Um, but I'm hoping 2022 will be a diving and do you think that uh, diving is something that you're going to continue for the rest of your life? Like, what's the longevity of someone's diving career? Well, this is the great thing. Uh, one of the best divers in the world um, began diving at 42. No way. So, you know, okay, maybe they might be in, well, she was, she was exceptional. Um, but maybe I might be in peak condition and obviously date. I, I have made a decision not to pursue it full time, not, not to live. Um, out somewhere I could train the ideal circumstance would be to spend part of the time in Ireland and part of the time away training but I I I don't see myself ever not doing it even if it's one week holiday a year and I just do some really fancy snorkeling <laughs> even if it's just that I, I can see it being part of my life I would love to um teach any future children how to free dive i think it's such a skill that gets overshadowed by its um dangerous reputation and like i said that overshadows all the benefits of it which are body awareness um being okay with your own head being okay with what's going on in there not running away from you have to make peace with it, accept it, confront it, all those things. A lot of the work is done on dry land. Um, So that meditation, mindfulness, being in the moment in the strictest way. um, uh, Yeah, it's, it has a lot of lessons that we can, I can apply to day to day life. Sounds like the water and free diving and the sea has changed your life. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I do talk about uh, going away to train, but when I'm away training, I miss the bite of the water here. I like cold water. I like that, oh, Jesus, when you can 
<laughs> I will curse every curse under the sun. It's part of the pantomime. It's part of the ritual. And for me anyway, um, like I miss the rawness and the, like the sheer beauty. I'm looking at a scene here, a beautiful painting beside me of moody, dark um, Irish water. And there's something like I get homesick for that when I go away. Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. <laughs> I could listen to you forever. Mm. Your life is so incredible and you're mm. a joy to be around. Thank, Thank you for you so being much. on the Nosy Fox podcast. Mm.